And we've been looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and seeing in this letter that Paul is teaching these Christians how to move from being selfish to being selfless. Problem is that in Corinth, there's all kinds of divisions. There's all kinds of problems. There's fighting. There's jealousy. And with these divisions and fights, it's a reflection that they are behaving selfishly and that they are acting arrogantly. Throughout the letter, you see the Apostle Paul talking about their arrogance, their boasting, their selfishness, all coming through. And, And Paul's first solution to them that we looked at last week was that they would understand that they are simply servants. That was our key focus that we looked at from the first four chapters last week. We are simply servants. We do not make much of us, but we make much of God. And now we're going to spend our time in chapters 5 through 7. And in chapters 5 through 7, you have the overarching issue of sexual immorality threaded through those three chapters. And the way that Paul is going to deal with that issue is again to show the problem of selfishness. And in the midst of showing that, he is going to teach them the mindset that is necessary for them to be more like Christ and to be transformed from selfish thinking to selfless thinking. One of the things that arises in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you have in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is you'll notice that verse 1 speaks of sexual immorality that is going on. And it is truly a reflection of selfishness that the church here is tolerating the practice of sexual immorality that's clearly condemned by God. In particular, you have an individual who is having relations with his stepmother. And you have even Paul saying in that day and time, even the world, the Gentiles, would not accept something like that. That is even abominable to them. And yet the church is, is accepting that. But beyond that, you'll notice in verse 2, he says, you're even proud about it. And, and this is ultimately the issue that Paul deals with here is, okay, you have sin in the church, but the way you're handling this it is truly unbelievable. You are accepting it. You are approving it. You are proud of it. In fact, you'll notice he says just a few verses later when he when he warns them about this issue in verse 6 and says, your boasting is not good. It's almost still hard for us to believe that that was the situation, that they are happy the sin is going on. They're arrogant about it. They are boasting about it. And what Paul then is going to do is tell them ultimately that you should have dealt with this situation. This sin should not have been among you. Verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Same image in verse 6. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough and you need to then cleanse that and remove it from your midst. But I want us to just take a moment and think about why this situation as it exists in Corinth is truly a reflection of the selfish thinking that is going on in the church. And it is selfish really on two levels. First, you have selfishness because the church is unwilling to do something about it. 
The church doesn't want to do anything about it. And they are approving it, accepting it. They are glorifying it. They are arrogant about it. They are boasting about it instead of doing something about that. And I hope that you will think about this idea for a moment. Is that you have the Apostle Paul saying, you can't continue in a spiritual relationship with someone who says they're a follower of Jesus And yet they're openly doing exactly what God says not to do. It just doesn't work. And that's ultimately what's at stake here. And ultimately what's the issue is here is someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, but refuses to do what God said to do. In fact, that really draws out in in verses 9 and 10. He says, I wasn't talking about the people of the world, but verse 11, I'm writing to you. Not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother. So someone who is claiming to be a Christian who is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler not to even eat with such a one. Now notice the picture that he's giving here is that if you're doing these things and claiming to belong to Jesus. Can't be that relationship. You can't say you follow God. And then you go about doing what you want to do. And the two areas of selfishness is first for the church to not do something about it. You say, well, why would that be selfish? And I hope that you would consider in your mind that no one wants to have to go to another Christian, a brother and sister in Christ, and say to them, You are committing a sin. It is a violation of God's law and you are doing wrong. I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm really looking forward to having to confront somebody about the sin they're committing. And I want to have to talk to them about that. The easy thing to do is to go, let's just all let it go. Let's not worry about it. Let's not talk about it. You do you and I'll do me. We'll just all just do what we want to do. And we just won't even address those kinds of things. And I hope that you will see why that is ultimately selfishness. And what the Corinthian church is doing is it is far easier to just not deal with sin. We're not going to do anything about it. And that's thinking about self. Because you're not doing me any good or helping me if I am publicly sinning and resisting God. And you don't say anything about it. If you don't address it. And I'm not doing you any good. If I see something in your life that is clearly taking you away from the Lord. And I don't say something about it. You see, selfishness within us says, well, I don't want to have to deal with this. I don't want to have to address that. I don't want to have to say something. I don't want to have to get involved. I don't want to do that. And this is what is happening in the Corinthian churches. Are they going to address this impulse? You're not doing anything about it. You're just clapping it along going, hey, that's great. You do what you want to do. That's, that's fine. And I hope that we would have an awareness of that and a sense of that is that it is so easy to just say, well, I'm not going to touch that. I'm just going to let that go. That's the easy path. And it really is the selfish path. I can tell you, I I do not ever want to have to talk to you about something like that. This would be far easier for me to go, la, 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 and not have to do that. I don't want to do it. 
That's what the Corinthian church is doing. Ah, that's great. Fine, let it be, whatever. But that's not what's in the best interest of other people. You see, selfishness is about thinking about self and not thinking about others. And our willingness to do something when there is public sin, as is being described here, is to say something. It is to act. It is to do something. To come up to them and say, I'm concerned about your soul. Something needs to change. That's actually caring for the person. How can I help you? Where can we go with this in our relationship with God? How can we move forward? How can we work together to put this sin behind us and do what God's called us to do? That is what we are called to do. And that is what what the Apostle Paul is dealing with here is someone who is refusing to do what God says. And so now the Apostle Paul says you need to do something about that. The other side of the coin of the selfishness that is observed here. It's really pretty easy to see. This is a person who says, I'm going to do what I want to do. (laughs) It's pretty unbelievable. I kind of even saw it in some of your faces when I said, here is somebody who's having relations with their stepmother. And some of you kind of went, (laughs) well, how is that happening? Underneath all of that is the mentality. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live my life and do what I think is best. And I'm going to do what I think is good for me. And I don't care what God says. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm going to live my life and I'm going to do what I want to do. And this is why throughout these three chapters, you're going to see Paul talking about a a warning to them about not thinking like that. As I just read for you there in verses 11 and 12, this is clearly a judgment of God, anyone who would do such a thing. But you see it also come back into play in chapter 6 and verse 9. For do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers, or those who practice homosexuality, or thieves, or greedy, or drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you. I never want to miss that line. You know, when Paul writes this, he doesn't say, and I'm thankful that none of you were that. No. That's who we are. That's the past. But you were washed. You were made holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's supposed to be the past. That's supposed to be left behind. This is part of the transformation of moving away from selfishness to selflessness. God has come and intervened and he is moving you away from that. That's what you used to do. Don't think like that any longer. Don't behave like that anymore. And that's what he's ultimately writing to them here is to get them to see the selfishness of what they are doing. Which let me put my first point ultimately forward to you. Sexual immorality is always selfishness. Sexual immorality is always selfishness. You are taking what you want without regard for the physical, emotional, or spiritual well-being of someone else. It's always selfishness. It's why there's three chapters here about this. 
is because ultimately that is what it boils down to. We are doing what we want to do. We are going to take what we want. We are going to do what seems best to us, what gives us pleasure. And there is not a regard for the impact upon anybody else. What's the impact on them? Don't care. It's what I want to do. And that's why this this section is here. In the midst of the problems that are going on in Corinth, as he talks to them about the divisions and the fighting and the jealousy, ultimately the selfishness and the arrogance, sexual immorality easily falls into that category. You are simply thinking about self. You are doing what you want to do without a regard for anyone else. I want you to hold that idea because, as I've said a couple of times, chapters 5, 6, and 7 are all about sexual immorality. And yet, at the beginning of chapter 6, it's almost like a curious side point, perhaps. But I don't think it's a side point, but more of an illustration to the issue in regards to sexual immorality. Because you'll notice, as was the reading this morning, when you get back to verse 12 of chapter 6, we're right back into sexual immorality. And chapter 7 is also about it too. That's how he introduces this thing regarding marriage and the behavior in the marriage. We'll talk about that in a minute. But for the first 11 verses, it almost seems like he went somewhere else where he starts talking to them about there are people in, uh, belonging to God who are Christians and they have these fights and they have these disputes and what they are doing to deal with those disputes and the fights is rather than trying to find a way to resolve it, they're taking each other to court. Lawsuits. We're going to sue each other over our various problems and disputes and issues that we have with one another, which brings up an interesting question before he even provides a real solution here. He brings up a question and says, is there not some way for a dispute to be dealt with among you? That's what he says in verse 5. Now that really reaches back to those first four chapters where we were talking about where divisions and problems are symptomatic of selfishness. Somebody's being selfish. Somebody's pushing their way. And notice he's even pointing out here, problems and disputes should be able to be sitting down between the two parties with someone who is spiritual and resolving it. I mean, that should just take care of it. Should be the end of it. And then he advances that even further. And you'll notice what he says as he describes this to them. When he says there in verse 5, I I say this to your shame about how this is going on. But then look at verse 7. To have lawsuits at all is already a defeat to you. Just think about that. If you have this dispute and you are like, we got to take this to court. He says, you've already lost. If you can't figure it out between each other, you've already lost. Especially when you notice the response that he gives. Notice the rest of verse 7. Why not just suffer wrong? Why not just be defrauded? Think about your immediate answer to when he said that. 
All right, you've got a problem. You've been wrong. No, Susan say you haven't been wrong. No, you have. You have been wronged. And he says, you taking it to court and having lawsuits with each other, then you've already you're already defeated. You've already lost. Why not just take the loss? Why not just be defrauded? Be defrauded. Why not just be wronged? Well, here's the answer that I think that we answer. Because I should get what's due to me. Because I've been wronged. (laughs) They did something. They owe me. It's deserved. Fill in the blank of whatever we Why not be defrauded? Because I, I have a case here. They are wrong and I want to be shown to be right. I'm going to be victorious. I'm going to win this. They owe me. And I think we have to really watch what the Apostle Paul is showing us is because so often what we do is we frame these things in terms of, well, here's what I deserve. And here's the problem with this kind of thinking about, well, I shouldn't suffer wrong. I shouldn't be defrauded at all. That's not right is to always spin this back the other direction. And please think about Jesus suffered wrong for us. Jesus was defrauded for us. And we say that we are followers of him. So then we suffer wrong. We will allow ourselves to be defrauded. We are not going to sue one another, choke each other out over something, try to win the argument, win the fight, show ourselves to be right, get what we deserve. That's not the mentality of Christ. That is selfish thinking when we think in terms like that. I'm going to show myself right about over that person. I'm going to prove my point. I'm going to get my way. I'm going to get what I owe. I'm going to get what I deserve. They did wrong. And Paul says, what? What kind of thinking is this as the people of God? And the reason why this is important is because that mentality right there, that illustration of that selfish thinking is now spun back into the rest of chapter 6 and the rest of chapter 7 about how we are to ultimately think about ourselves. And the big conclusion he's going to say here is you don't own you. Watch how he does that. Verse 12, he starts saying, now here's their quotation. Here's what some people say. Here's what, all things are lawful for me. Modern translation. I can do whatever I want. (laughs) And notice Paul's answer is, you know, just because you think something's lawful for you to do doesn't mean you should do it. Probably use a good dose of that these days. Just because you think you have a right or an ability to do something doesn't mean you should do it. And notice the questions that he asked there in in, in verse 12. Well, is it going to be good for you? Is it helpful? 
And is it going to be something that could overpower you? He says, he says, you know, you say I can do whatever I want. He says, well, is that really for your good when you frame it that way? I'll do whatever I want to do. Yeah, but you might get yourself in a whole lot of trouble. Get yourself involved in some things that you can't get yourself out of. It'll allow it to overpower you and dominate you. That's what verse 12 describes. I'll not be enslaved by anything. You think you can go do whatever you want to do without consequence, and you're not thinking about the consequences. And that's ultimately what the Corinthian Christians are saying. What they are saying here is very much what our world says today and teaches us today. It's my body and I can do whatever I want to do. And I want you to notice Paul's argument back to that. Look at verse 19. Do you not know... That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Corinthians are saying, it's my body, I'll do whatever I want to do. So if I want to commit sin, fine. Or even if it's lawful, I'll do whatever I want to do. It doesn't matter. I'm going to think about me. I'm going to do what's best for me. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. I'm going to do what seems good. Paul says, you think your body is your own? You are so wrong. It's not your body. It belongs to God. Now let's take a step back. Make a whole side sermon right there and just in your mind, think about how dramatically that would change everything in your life. If everything operated under the umbrella of it's not my body, it belongs to God. Now, therefore, go and live your life. That's a pretty radical statement. That's pretty life transforming. You don't own your body. God does. He made it and he bought it. And therefore, he says at the end of that chapter, therefore, you honor God with that body. If we had time, how many times do I have to say if we had time? If we had time. If we had time, you could explore that verse 19 and say, he says your body is a temple. What that means is far bigger than often how that's traditionally applied. Your body is a temple means your body is supposed to be used so that the world will come in contact with God. That's what the temple was for. People would find God when Solomon built that temple. The Gentiles would come and find God. The nations would come and find find God. Israel could turn its heart back to God and find God. God would meet them there. He says, You use your body so that people find God. Because it's not your body. It belongs to him. It was bought with a price. Friends, that's supposed to just break selfishness altogether. Is that this body doesn't belong to me. God's letting me use it so that I will glorify him. And so sexual morality is certainly not supposed to happen. That's The context there as he talks about there, verse 18, flee from sexual morality. But that is life changing about everything we do. If my body is not my own and I'm meant to glorify God, then how should I handle fights and disputes? How should I handle disagreements? How should I handle problems? Oh, it's 
dramatic, the kind of mentality we would have about what happens to us and how we deal with others. If we think about it in terms like that, the reason why we can be wronged and we can be defrauded and we can let things go like that is because it's not my body. And I'm trying to honor God and I'm trying to show him and I'm trying to show the world the way to God. That's why I say it's all right. And in my mind, I might go, this is not just. And I know I'm right, but that doesn't matter because what happened to Christ was not just and it wasn't right, but it was for our good. And so we move from selfish thinking to selfless thinking when we remember it's not my body. God owns it belongs to him. The reason he's given it to me is so that he would be honored in everything that I say and everything that I do. Which pushes to chapter 7. Chapter 7, and I will put my disclaimer on this, it is not my, do not have the time nor the purpose to flip over every stone and everything in chapter 7. But I have preached through this and you can go online if you want all those details. They're all there. But that's not the point for this morning. But I do want you to notice again the issue that is at stake here in chapter 7, verse 2. Notice he says, because of the temptation of sexual morality. Sexual morality problem is just moving all through these three chapters. The problem of sexual morality, and he wants that to be prevented. And I was thinking about that as I was putting this lesson together. And the statistics regarding the problem of sexual immorality in our culture today and among Christians is saddening. And it's explosive and it's far-reaching. I was thinking about as, as a kid, the only way pornography could be accessed was through pay television or trying to f- reach some super high magazine that was covered over that was hidden behind where people could have access. And now it's so accessible. Phones and tablets and computers. It's just everywhere. It's just blowing up. The kind of easy access that exists to these things. You see in our world today that sexual immorality, adultery, affairs are just the norm in our society anymore. Just just the norm. Just common that this happens. The issues that the Apostle Paul is facing in the first century in the Corinthian church in the city of Corinth is not far away from our culture and our problems that we have today. And I'll restate what I stated earlier. Sexual immorality is selfishness. You are taking what you want without regard for another person. And this mentality of being selfless reaches all the way into marriage. You'll notice in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 7, he says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So let's advance the idea even further Marriage is also not about trying to get what you want. I want you to notice really a big statement that's made here about marriage. Marriage is about giving yourself to the other person. 
Marriage is not built on, well, here's all the things that I expect the other person to do for me. Can you imagine a vow ceremony that sounded like that? That would just be lovely. We'd just go to a wedding and, all right, I will stay married to you if you do one, two, three, four, all these things for me, I do. <laughs> all of the vows are always, here's what I'm going to give to you, not here's what I expect you to give me. I guess to be fair, marriages should probably start doing that the way they're built anymore. You're going to do this for me. Otherwise, we ain't staying together. (laughs) That's not what it's supposed to be. Which young people, this is why it's really important. Take your time and be careful who you marry because you're giving yourself to the other person. That's what you're saying. You're saying to the person, I'm going to give myself to you. That's the beauty of marriage. That's the selflessness of marriage. Marriage is supposed to represent the ultimate image of selflessness. To such a degree that the Apostle Paul could write that the marriage relationship is a reflection of Christ in the church. (laughs) Well, I think there's a whole lot of selflessness going on there with with Christ in the church. And that's supposed to be an image of that. Marriage is not about selfishness. It's not about behaving selfishly, but the giving of ourselves to the other. And that's what's being depicted here in verses three through five is, do you understand what is supposed to happen that we give ourselves in that way? And and the rest of chapter seven, at least through verse 24, is talking about how marriage is supposed to be together. Verse 10, divorce is not supposed to be an option. You're not supposed to enter marriage and go, well, you know, if they don't do what I want, I already know how to get out of this mess. Very clear, verse 10, don't divorce. Don't do it. And I think it's important for us to consider that if both the husband and the wife are always acting selflessly. Would anybody ever think about divorce? I don't think so. If both the husband and the wife are both not thinking about self, but the other, would divorce ever enter the mind of that individual? And I think it's so important to see that divorce ultimately means somebody is acting selfishly. Somebody's thinking about self rather than the interest of the other. And that explains why this would be condemned. It's why Christians ought not to divorce. It's why he gives illustrations of it all the way to verse 24 about that's not supposed to happen. Jesus was very succinct. Matthew 19, verse 6. What God has joined together, don't separate. There you go. That's that's the game right there. It's not supposed to happen. We're not supposed to be thinking about self, but the way we are going to give ourselves to the other person. And so ultimately, that is what you have the Apostle Paul picturing. Adultery is not an option. Affairs are not an option. Sexual immorality is not an option. Divorce is not supposed to be an option. We are supposed to be giving ourselves to the other person and we are thinking about them. We're not thinking about ourselves. And in the... 
very beautiful relationship that marriage is supposed to be. It's far too often that those marriages degenerate into selfish behaviors and selfish thinking. And that's why he has to write this very long thing to them about the problems that they have is because it is a church that is filled with selfishness. That they're doing what they want to do rather than considering ultimately how to be selfless like Christ. Application as we wrap it up. Big thing that I hope that you would see that the Apostle Paul is doing in trying to move us from selfish thinking to selfless thinking. Last week, the movement was we are simply servants. We're simply servants. We're nothing more than servants. We are doing God's work as servants and nothing more. This week, his picture is very simple. You belong to God. He gave you that body. And your purpose is to glorify God or to use the lesson from two weeks ago. It's not about me. It's not about me. And I'll remind ourselves that the things that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the problems that we see in our society, the issues that we face, the disagreements, the fighting, the hatred, all of that kind of stuff comes down to people thinking it's about themselves. You want to solve these problems. You got to turn back to God and see it's not about us. And that's true in every aspect of what these three chapters have talked about. Sexual immorality does not glorify God. So don't do that. Don't participate in those things. Create ways so that it is not possible for you to engage in those activities. Put in safeguards. Block your internet. Stay away from temptations. Do whatever you've got to do to avoid this. Because it is a very real problem. And it's destroying lives. It's destroying relationships. It's destroying families. Ignoring public sinning in the church, that doesn't glorify God either. Interesting how Paul would put all this together. Here they've got these problems of just saying, yay, sin. Because that's not glorifying me. Have to take a stand and say, sin's not right. God's not glorified. And we're choosing to live our lives how we want to live. Winning arguments. That is not God glorifying either. Trying to be right. Trying to get what you deserve. That doesn't glorify God. Doing what you want to do doesn't glorify God. Being selfish in marriage doesn't glorify God. I hope that we would just kind of take a step back and just think about what Paul wants us to see is the one way that we glorify God is in selfless living. That's how God's glorified. And take that concept and just put it into every area of your life. If you're not married, how are you living to glorify God? How are you living selflessly so that God is glorified? If you are married, how are you living so that God is glorified? What does that look like so that he is glorified in your marriage and in your relationship, in your family? What does that look like in the church so that God is glorified in the way that we interact with one another, the things that we do for each other? Is God being glorified in the way that we are thinking, speaking, and dealing with one another? That is the heart of the issue for this church in Corinth. 
is that he is observing with them from their activities together as a church to their activities with with their marriage and, and outside of the church. In every aspect, selfless living needs to happen. Otherwise, ultimately, God is not glorified. And I'll just remind us, if we're not our own, but we were bought with a price, then why not just take the defrauding? Why not just take the wrong and follow the example of Jesus and give ourselves as a sacrifice rather than taking what we think belongs to us? Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Selfish thinking is so easy. Lord, believing that we should just be able to do whatever we want, take whatever we want to live however we want is, is just such an easy thought process. God, I pray that you'd forgive us for thinking in selfish terms. Forgive us for when we have not acted as we ought to toward one another as the people of God. Forgive us for when we have tried to press our way, win arguments, to be right, rather than yielding and submitting. God, forgive us for how we use our bodies. Lord, help us to be ever so aware that these bodies belong to you and we need to use them in holy ways and in ways that glorify you. Forgive us for selfishness in marriage. Forgive us for selfishness in relationships. Forgive us for selfishness in family. Lord, I pray that you would help us to just burn within our hearts and burn within our minds the example of your son who gave everything for us so that we would give everything for others. Forgive us for our failures. And Lord, we pray for a far greater strength to live in a way that honors you and glorifies you to live in a way that people would see you and not ourselves in the days ahead. Lord, we live in a time that is just absolutely charged sexually. Please help us to flee from sexual morality. Lord, help us to put up barriers, give us the strength and the the will to fight against these temptations. And as we are surrounded by it, Lord, we pray that you would transform our hearts to not desire those things, but to seek ultimately the fulfillments that come through you and from you. Lord, strengthen our faith, purify our hearts, and make us clean. And Lord, thank you for your son that washes us, makes us holy, and justifies us so that we can walk away from the sins of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.
We'll sing an invitation song. We invite you to think about your relationship with Christ. To think about where you stand with Him. That you would truly give your life to Him with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the wonderful picture that as we looked at this morning is God will forgive those sins. Whatever those sins are, God forgives those sins. They can be forgiven. And we want you to be able to receive that forgiveness this very day, that you would turn away from your sins, confess Jesus to be the Son of God. If you have not been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, that is where your relationship starts, that you can enjoy fellowship with him and eternity with him the very end. Anyway, we can help you. Will you come now?